One of the things that I love about teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible is that as you're progressing from story to story, from verse to verse, from thought to thought, you notice the interconnectedness of the text, of how one story builds to the next story, and one lesson introduces the following lesson, and how uh, these things have not been compiled accidentally, but that there is a, a general theme in regards to what the Lord's trying to communicate through the words, the, 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 the text here in the Gospel of Mark. In doing so, it's often helpful to just often remind ourselves of some of the context before we move on. Now, there's always a balancing act that a pastor has to juggle between taking too much time at the beginning of a Bible study, recapping previous studies, and not spending enough time. No one wants to hear the Bible study taught last week taught again, but at the same time, you need a little context just in case you weren't here last week to understand what's happening. And so I want to begin this morning by just throwing out two contextual details that are important as we continue our travels through Mark chapter 10. First, as we've noted, Jesus is on a direct and deliberate journey to Jerusalem with his disciples to celebrate the feast of Passover. Secondly, Jesus, as we noted three weeks ago, taught a great lesson to the disciples on servanthood that then set the stage for really the ultimate test of servanthood, marriage, and he takes the opportunity to talk about divorce. But that lesson, which we looked at last week, sets the stage for this morning because it's not an accident after talking about marriage and divorce that Jesus transitions to a discussion concerning children. So, verse 13 of Mark chapter 10. Then they brought little children to Jesus. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's making his way down the Jordan River Valley. There's a multitude of Jews from Galilee that are also on the road making this journey. As we saw last week, Jesus has taken the opportunity, traveling with such an entourage, to teach the people, knowing that his time for teaching was limited because of the events that would occur in Jerusalem. So as all of this is happening, they brought little children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples, you know, those loving disciples, they rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. And he said to the disciples, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms. He laid his hands on them and he blessed them. Now, as we do, we always start with our scene of activity. And as I look at this particular scene, I note two different phases of the activity, two different interactions. You first see a group of people bringing their children to Jesus, and then you kind of observe how Jesus handles that group of people. But then you should also see a second interaction of the disciples, how the disciples behaved with these people bringing their children to Jesus, and then how Jesus reacts and responds to the, to the disciples. So when we dissect this text, we're going to look at it in these two different interactions. First, what the people did and how Jesus reacted to them. They brought little children to Jesus that he might touch them. And then what did Jesus do? He took them up in his arms he didn't resist them. He didn't forbid them. He took them up into his arms. He laid his hands on them. And we're told that he blessed them. Now, this word brought, that they brought the little children to Jesus, it's an interesting word. The idea behind it is that it's of the same concept of bringing a sacrifice to the temple. You'll find this word used to describe that particular act, how at this moment, what are the Jews doing? They're on their way to the temple to celebrate the feast of Passover, to offer up a sacrifice to atone for sin. And so they're bringing their children as one would bring a sacrifice to the Lord. They're bringing their children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the idea presented behind this phrase that he might touch them is that it was a Levitical practice of consecration. 
So you would bring an offering to the Lord, to the temple, to the priest, who would then consecrate that offering before presenting it to the Lord, presenting it to God. Now, this was a common practice, parents bringing their children to a rabbi for consecration. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of how Jesus reacts, how Jesus responds, because they're bringing children that he might touch them, but Jesus doesn't touch them in the sense of what they're asking for. He blesses them, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I can't help but look first. They brought. Who's they? Now, there are really two equally relevant ways you can look at this word they. On one aspect, they could be Mark's way of indicating a group of couples, parents, a man and a wife bringing their children to Jesus, presenting their child to the Lord. And that's accurate and would be appropriate interpretation of the passage. But it should be noted something significant or or interesting about this word they. Though it can refer to parents, man and wife, it's actually masculine. It's a masculine pronoun. Mark saying they brought could very well be interpreted fathers were bringing their children to Jesus. Now, though Jesus is fond of mothers who bring their children to Jesus, I do think, I do believe There is something special, there is something unique when men, when fathers bring their children to Jesus. Let me explain. There is what's called within young boys the separation individualism transition, the SIT. Now, what this phenomenon describes is that boys... You know, boys, they spend their entire developmental years in a feminine world. They're carried by mom for the first nine months of their life. And then they're nursed by mom. They're taken care of by mom. They have their diapers changed, most often by mom, on the rare occasion maybe by dad. They're cared for by mom. Preschool is typically women. You often observe within daycare, predominantly a women's world. Kindergarten teachers, first grade, second grade, elementary school is also, what? Very feminine. You see, a boy spends the majority of their developmental years in a feminine world. And then this is what happens. At some point, and it can vary between the age of the child, but a boy will begin to break from the feminine and begin to define himself as something different from the woman in which, whose body he sprang. Now, to take his place in society as a man, as the separation, individualism, transition occurs, a boy will reject, and this is all natural, moms, don't take it personally, but a boy will reject his mother in feminine ways, and he'll begin to gravitate to what he observes to be masculine. Now, in most instances, a boy associates masculinity with whom? The one he's able to observe more often. That's dad. And so he watches dad in contrast to mom, and as the separation begins to occur, what will the young man begin to do? He'll begin to do what dad does while he's rejecting what mom does which makes it a lot more difficult now to get a boy to do chores around the house versus going outside and working with dad. It's a natural transition. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that in some instances, during this transition, a boy will reject church. Why? Because church is often associated with women and femininity, not men and masculinity. And there are two contributing factors to this particular problem. First, the church by and large has Sunday school volunteers, predominantly women. From the nursery, 
to preschool and toddlers, to children's ministry, to even youth ministry. The church by and large also fills these roles with women. So in addition to having a child, uh, his entire developmental years out there being surrounded by women, when a young boy comes to church, he's also being surrounded by women as he's developing. So volunteers are women. So as he begins to reject things that are feminine, he's associating church with also being feminine and not masculine. The other problem, few fathers regularly attend church. You know, 60% of the typical adult congregation is comprised of women. 60%. 20% of married women regularly attend church without their husbands. Though 90% of American men believe in God, five out of six call themselves Christian, but only two of six attend church on a given Sunday meaning the average American Christian man, he might accept the reality that Jesus is God, but he fails to see the value in going to church. And what happens? Boys, they're taken to church by whom? Mom. Who stays home? Dad. And as they begin this period of separation and becoming an individual, as the boy naturally begins to reject feminine things and gravitates towards masculine things because mom goes to church and mom follows a faith, but dad stays home, as an adolescent, what do young boys begin to want to do? I don't want to go to church with mom anymore. I want to stay home and watch NASCAR with dad. I want to stay home and sleep in because that's what dad does. I associate what dad does with being masculine, what mom does with being feminine because mom does church and dad doesn't. When I'm naturally beginning to have this separation, where does a young boy end up going? It's pure psychology. It's a problem. As a matter of fact, it's an epidemic within the church. I think that there are three remedies to this problem that I think is is of crucial importance. First, we need men to volunteer for children and youth ministry. Your church has an emphasis concerning this. Though we don't have as many men involved in our children's ministry as we would like to have, and as I'm going through this, if the Lord lays it on your heart to get involved, you speak to me after the service. But Matt Sewell's in there right now with his wife presenting a masculine role within children's ministry, our youth ministry, between David and Creighton. We have men involved within our youth ministry. Here's the thing. We want to make sure that children, even if they go to church with mom and dad stays home, that there are enough male figures involved and interacting with our boys in their developmental years that when they reach this point, it's not as easy to associate church with mom because they've connected with a lot of men. I think back to my childhood, to my developmental years, and the majority of the Sunday school teachers I can remember were all men. And the lessons that we had we're kind of male-oriented, spiritual lessons, not of like felt board cartoons or memorizing Bible verses or things that will bore a young man to death, but like blowing up a pickle or going dumpster diving and learning why that's somehow spiritual. None of these things, by the way, I, I can remember being spiritual, but they were things that just connected. And so as I'm growing up, I associated church with men, not just my father, but other men within the church that took an interest in me as I was developing. That's why a remedy to the problem of the gender gap within church, of boys leaving the church when they reach adolescence, is you need men involved in boys' lives during development. But secondly, we need to be a church that embraces the masculine spirit. Now, why is it important to embrace the masculine spirit. Here's the deal. If the ultimate solution to the problem of boys leaving church 
is the fact that men don't go to church. Then if you want to remedy the problem, who should you target? You should target the men. Because if you get the men to come to church and to be the leader of their family, to step up and man up and be the priest of their house, then naturally a boy is going to associate church, not just with mom, but also with dad. And so it's important for a church to remedy the problem. In addition to having men involved in children's ministry and youth ministry, it's also important for a church to embrace the masculine spirit so it can appeal to a man. And this is important for two reasons. First, it's effective strategy. And when it comes to salvation, When a woman comes to Christ, statistically, the rest of her family, the kids and dad, follow her 17% of the time. If a woman gives her life to the Lord, decides to plug into church, 17% of the time, the rest of the family will follow her. However, when a dad comes to Christ, when a dad decides to surrender himself to Jesus, when a dad decides to make church a priority, when a dad decides to lead his family, do you realize the rest of the family follows an astounding 93% of the time? Which means that if our job is to go into the world to make disciples of men and women and children, then our strategy to be effective, who should we focus on the moms or on the dads. If the dad engages, the family comes 93% of the time. But if the mom, it's only 17%. When a man encounters Christ, it's the truth. The rest of the family statistically follows. But there's another reason this is important. It has a biblical precedent. You know, knowing the influence of a father and the psychological makeup of the male gender it's not an accident that Jesus focused his earthly ministry on men, that he targeted men. Now, obviously, Jesus, his focus was also children and women. I'm not saying that he didn't minister to them as well. He did. There's evidence, plenty of it. We've looked at it, even in the context of our current story. But note, Jesus' emphasis was whom? You read through the Gospels, you will find Jesus interacting more with men than women. Why? Because knowing the influence of a father, the general statistics, and also knowing the makeup of men, if you want to reach the world, Jesus saw that we should embrace the masculine spirit. If you want to change the world, focus on men. But then the greater question, okay, Zach, that's great. Embrace the masculine spirit. I see why that's important. Understood. But how do you accomplish that? Well, let me explain. First, we as a church should emphasize men's values in addition to women's values. You know, women, I'm not going to say that I particularly understand women at all, but it is a truth from what I read that women are more relationally based. Women gravitate towards relationships and emotion and feeling. Whereas men, men gravitate not towards the relational, but instead the experiential. Men love to explore. We love heroism, sacrifice, action, adventure, risk, reward, accomplishment. Little girls love to have tea time where they dress up their dolls and what happens? The dolls sit around a table and they talk with each other and they interact with one another. Men, boys, not so much. They wanna go out into the woods and knock something down, build something up, then knock that down and rebuild it somewhere else. Men, boys, there is a difference. Women, relational. Men, experiential. And that's natural. But the problem is, is church? Church ends up gravitating more which direction? We end up gravitating more towards the relational, the emotional, and the feeling 
of which men can't relate or connect to versus the risk and the adventure and the reward, the experiential. Let me give you further proof of this existence within men and women. Just look at the ratings of various movies. The love story, the sappy, we call it the chick flick. Why? Because you're not going to find a lot of men in the movie theater watching. It doesn't appeal to them. On the flip side, what does a man want to go watch? Die Hard. I think they're coming out with Die Hard 30 at this point. Who knows? But like we like, shoot them up, running around, evil, good, the clash, good triumphing over evil, the innocent people being saved, the bad people being destroyed. Like we like those kind of things. The ratings show huge men going and seeing those, lots of women seeing the other, and it's natural. So here's the problem. The church has created a gender gap by emphasizing things that women relate to while neglecting the things that men connect with. Now, though this has happened because the church is predominantly female, so in some ways we're appealing to the audience, you cannot escape this reality. If you want to be a church that reaches men, you must be a church that appeals to men. If you appeal to women by only promoting female values, then men can't connect, feel awkward or out of place. Men need to be appealed to. And we should avoid a common mistake. You know, church, church should not be a place where a woman intends to tame her man. I think a lot of women have this particular approach. They want their husband or their boys to come to church, try to calm them down, tame them a little bit. Church shouldn't be a place that intends to tame a man Rather, it should be a place, if you really want to represent the masculine spirit, that is designed to set a man free. I might get some flack for this statement, but please listen. If you're a mom or a wife who is bringing their son or their husband, dragging their son or their husband to church to settle them down, you should try Prozac, not church. And here's why. Because at church, we should be not looking to tame a man, but our emphasis, our, our approach should be to set a man free, to experience an amazing and dangerous adventure for the cause of Christ, one in which you could lose your life, battling evil. See, if you want to set your man free to do something for Jesus, well, bring them to Calvary 3.16. But if you're wanting to tame your man, listen, our men's events, we eat breakfast, we pray, and we shoot things. We appeal to a masculine spirit. But here's the other thing. We also need to embrace risky behavior. You know, if you want men in the ranks, and you want scripture as an example for how to do it, then you need to be a church. I'll say it this way. We will be a church that will attempt to do something large enough for the kingdom of Christ that failure is guaranteed unless God steps in. It's the basic storyline of every action movie. Secondly, if we want to appeal to the masculine spirit, we should actively contrast popular misconceptions, mainly of Jesus and the Bible and masculinity. Now, here's the truth. Though the gender gap, this issue, facing the modern church is relatively new, it is real. And there are lots of reasons why we see a gender gap within the church. Natural explanations. The Industrial Revolution. You can mark the, the change. I mean, you look back over the history of the church, it's always been predominantly male and male influenced. But beginning in the 1900s, the Industrial Revolution, two world wars, the rise of secularism, there is a shift in the gender gap. But you can't overlook the negative influence that feminism 
has had within the church. The rise of feminism coupled with liberal progressives influencing the church has actively pursued the reduction of the masculine spirit within the Bible. Even to the point, and you've heard it, that there are those who are trying to wash Scripture of the masculine pronoun being used for God. Feminism and progressives trying to remove God and the, the, the masculine presentation of him. There is an active pursuit to take the Bible's greatest hero, Jesus of Nazareth, and neuter him. And to make him your best friend, someone you can cuddle with, with long, blow-drawn hair, who just very nonchalantly glides along the hillside, all about peace, being passive. You see, we've neutered Jesus. It's wrong. But here's the other thing, is that churches, churches promote, teach passivity instead of tenacity. Diffidence over burliness. Safety instead of courage. Tranquility over struggle, women over men. Is there any surprise that when we try to remove the masculine spirit of God and we neuter Jesus and we promote all of these things that men can't relate to, that men are repelled by church? A lot of men are reluctant to go to church because of the reputation that would follow. They're not afraid of God. Men don't go to church because they're afraid of emasculation. Here's the truth. Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, he's not Mr. Rogers. If you need a mental picture, he's more like General Patton. He was strong and he was vigorous. He was manly. Jesus was manly, and it's time we get back to an appropriate understanding of who Jesus is because men don't want to follow a feminine Jesus. But if we understand who Jesus really is, I think we have no problems rallying men to his cause. Third, thirdly, we should be a church that challenges men to man up. There's an interesting study that was published in the Journal for Scientific Study of Religion. And I want to read for you a quote from this particular study. Gay men are significantly more active in religious organizations as a percentage when compared to heterosexual men. In many ways, gay men are comparable to heterosexual women, whereas lesbians and female bisexuals have a very low religious rate of activity comparable to heterosexual men. The conclusion of the study, why do so many effeminate and gay men attend church when so many heterosexual men are absent? Well, the church has become one of the few institutions in society where there's no pressure to actually act like a man. And it is a sad indictment of the church. One, one scholar I read, he said this, he says, make things too comfortable for a man he'll lose interest. Try to control a man, he'll rebel. Overcomfort a man, he'll resent you as a nag. But challenge a man the way Jesus challenged the disciples, and he will grow. A church that challenges its members is a church where men can thrive. I like to say it this way. When nothing great is asked of a man, a man will give exactly what's been asked of him, nothing. Men need a challenge to respond to. And at Calvary 316, we'll always be providing you that, to man up, to take your responsibility, to lead your family. This morning's Bible study is an example of such. Fourth, we should be a church that has solid male leadership. Now, obviously, there are biblical reasons, biblical doctrine, why we should see male pastors and male leaders. And I, and I don't want to get into the particulars of that other than to say that there is also a lesser and practical reason 
that a church needs to have strong male leaders. And you know why? Men follow men. Now, those 60% of churches with a male pastor suffer the gender gap. This number increases to 80% when a congregation has a female senior pastor. The honest reality. Women, women will follow a man. But few men will follow a woman unless they're coerced or forced or circumstances simply demand it. And I know that might appear to be controversial, but it's simply the truth. When a man finds a man that he respects, that he looks to, that he connects with, that he decides to follow, when a man finds a man to follow, you know there's no limit to what that man will do. You see it all over scripture. Men of valor that saw David, that rallied to his cause and would enter any battle that David so commissioned them to. To the point that David on a happen chance says, man, I could really go for a glass of water from my hometown that was behind enemy lines. And what happens? A group of men hear that. And they launch a covert operation to get behind enemy lines. For what reason? Because there was a man that they connected with, that they looked to, that they respected, that they were willing to follow. Think of it this way. Jesus. You know, 2,000 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, today, there are millions of men who not only follow him, but are willing to lay down their lives if he asked them to. That's a man who we can follow. Fifth, we should be a church that aesthetically and operationally appeals to men. I believe aesthetics are not all that important. I don't think in some ways that they really help you a lot, but I do think they can hurt you. I think of something that we find to be insignificant, then we should have no problems tailoring that for a purpose. Male-friendly aesthetics are important. Have you ever noticed that when you enter the family Christian bookstore, or really any Christian bookstore for that matter, that it's very girly. It's very feminine. It's very frou-frou, isn't it? Do you know why? That's not an accident. That is intentional because 75% of the people that go in to buy something from the Christian bookstore are women. If a family Christian bookstore changed their decor to camo, Leather furniture, pop-up books. <laughs> Maybe a guy cooking barbecue out front. If they targeted men, they'd go out of business because men don't go to the bookstore, yet alone the Christian bookstore. If they change the racks to magazines, there might be a better chance, but we're not reading a whole book. Get out of town. See, it's the truth. Family bookstores, they, their decor is all feminine because that's who they're marketing, because that's who will come. Branding to a man would be a poor business model. Now, is there any wonder that designing a church aesthetic that appeals to women will also have the same desired effect? More women and less men? Now, we don't have that problem here at Calvary 316, and this is setting the stage for an explanation of why this building looks the way that it does. It was designed and built by a man for a man. The colors we have in this building are manly. The aesthetics we have, the look we have, is to appeal to a man. It's for a man to look around and say, I'm pretty comfortable here. It's why we have lots and lots of wood and not much pink or doilies or innate photography. We have men things. There is a picture of Muhammad Ali standing over a guy that he just beat the daylights out of. For what reason? Because a man looks at that and thinks, pretty cool. The only reason. 
aesthetically, we're trying to target men. Because really, I don't think any of you women have ever come in and think, I'm not going to church there. There is not enough purple. (laughs) But men come to church where there's lots of purple or pink or weird things hanging from the wall or flowers. And then it emasculates them. And they don't feel comfortable. Male-friendly aesthetics are important if you want to appeal to men. But also, a male-minded service is also essential. You know, men, men appreciate excellence. Which is why we put a lot of time, energy, and effort into making sure that at Calvary 316, it's not amateur hour. We avoid amateurism. Now, we don't have the luxury of having professionals, but you know what? The music, it's tight. It's been practiced. It's been rehearsed. There might be the occasional stray note here or there from the electric guitar, but we just turn it up louder so you like it all the more. (laughs) We want to be and operate with excellence. Let me say it this way. We want to avoid the cringe factor. You know, women, when women look at a program, because they're relational and they're emotional, they look at the person involved and they are feeling for them, right? So like if if we were to have a vocalist that can't sing, but we're just including them, a woman's going to sit there and look and listen And yes, acknowledge that it's not so good. But think, she's trying so hard. I'm going to encourage her. A man sits there and thinks, oh my goodness gracious. That's horrible. That's horrible. And you know what? Because... The the videos don't play on time and and there's no uh, method or or rhyme or reason to the program. That that it looks like it's amateur. My wife is bringing, there's no chance I'm inviting someone else. And why? Because men, we evaluate things not on people and how we feel. We evaluate on the bottom line. And if we can't connect with the bottom line, we feel less than stellar about it. Now that's not to say that we're perfect here. But we try and we work and we have meetings to make sure what we do here is done with excellence. Not just to appeal to men. Because the Bible tells us to do all to the glory of God. To do all to the glory of God. We avoid that phrase. That's good enough for church. No. Is it good enough for God? And we pursue excellence because men appreciate it. Men also appreciate innovation and creativity, which is why we have the app, which is why we utilize so much technology here at Calvary 316. We try to do things. Dads are at home tinkering with gadgets all day long. We love gadgets, so we try to incorporate some gadgets here at church to connect with men. But we also also ensure that worship is man-friendly. And we do this really in two ways. First, we tailor the music to the audience we want to reach. You know, driving rock, rock and roll, screaming electric guitars, ACDC, Guns N' Roses, rock. Not to say that that's what we're doing per se, but rock. Brian would love to do that, but that's not what we're doing. Rock and roll, the target audience is male. Why? Because 69% of men will buy the music. Whereas... Soft rock, love rock, contemporary, not very man-centric. Not a lot of men buying Barry Manilow. 67% of female buy soft rock. It's the total opposite. So we want to try to tailor the music to an audience that we want to reach. Not to say that it's all driving rock. We try to have a balanced approach, but we want men to feel comfortable. And we also want to pick songs that are appropriate to the audience we want to reach. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine, really. Because I can't stand 
I can't stand when worship is encouraging me as a man to try to use words to God or to Jesus, another man, that I don't often really even throw out there to my own wife. Like that song that we used to do a while ago before I had control and I could get rid of it. That I'm going to look into Jesus' eyes and touch his tear-stained face. That's great for a woman. Not for a man. That kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. You see, here's the deal. We should avoid songs, and this is going to be controversial, but roll with me. We should avoid songs that make men feel gay. It's true. One quote, with the spotlight on on homosexuality so large with the church, why increase men's doubt by using language of romance to describe Christ, the, the walk with Christ or the Christian experience? You'll note that we try to have some songs that appeal to the ladies without making men feel weird singing them, but we also try to have songs that appeal to men who are more experiential, not touchy-feely, so that I can worship God not just with a, a feeling or an emotion, but with my mind. That's why we incorporate hymns. That's why we try to incorporate language within the songs that we use where a man can sing it. It's a march. It's a challenge. Jesus is my king. I want to use words that are appropriate. Nobody that's a Marine would dare use words to their drill sergeant that we often use to Jesus. But it's almost the same relationship we should consider. And men want to connect in that way. And so we try to make sure that we pick songs appropriate to a male audience. But finally, we ensure men's ministry is for men, which means that our men's ministry is not a repackaging of the women's ministry, which is how a lot of men's ministries end up being. It's also not a men's ministry created and fostered by old men with low T. We want to make sure that our men's ministry appeals to men who want to do something and want to be adventuresome, which is why coming up this summer, we have a whole package of men's events aimed at men doing men's things to create camaraderie. We need the church to embrace the masculine spirit if we're going to attract men and if we're going to effectively represent Jesus. Jesus had no problems attracting men. Fishermen dropped their nets full of fish to follow him. But sadly, today's church cannot convince men to drop their remote for one and a half hours on Sunday morning. It's tragic. And it communicates the wrong thing. George Gallup, he said this, women women may be the backbone of a congregation, but the presence of a significant number of men is often a clear indicator of the spiritual health of that church. And I look around this morning and it excites me to see what God is doing at Calvary 316 and what God will do in the future. Now I said that there's three, there's three things, three ways in which we've got to try to attack this and address this. The third thing, when it's all said and done, we can have men in, in, in children's ministry and youth ministry, and we can, we can do all that we can to appeal to the, the masculine spirit so men can come to Calvary 316 and, and connect. But when it's all said and done, what do we need more than anything? We need dads to rise up. You can't replace dad. Boys. Boys follow men. And dad, they want to follow you above and beyond anything. And if you vacate that role, they will find another man to lead them in another way. But they want to be led by you. I ran across a quote of a youth pastor of a couple decades. And as a youth pastor of 10 years myself, I can agree with this statement. He says, kids who are taken to church by mom, but not by dad, are harder to keep in church. They tend to drop out at higher rates when they reach adolescence. They're also harder to engage when it comes to youth group. This is true, not just for boys, but also for girls. Dad, it's time for you to step up and lead your family. But moms, 
All that to say, you can still play a very crucial role. Because if you have a vacant dad, bring them to church, talk with me, and we will make sure that they have male mentors, people involved. We will pray for your husband, that he will step up. But women, you also play a role in the spiritual development of your children. Ran across a quote from Charles Spurgeon, I think says it well. And when I say I ever run across a quote from Charles Spurgeon, I really ran across a quote of David Guzik who quoted Charles Spurgeon. Because I don't really like reading Spurgeon, but don't have to, because if you read David Guzik, he reads Charles Spurgeon, so I just get all the good quotes. So Charles Spurgeon once said, I remember on one occasion, my mom praying thus, now Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish, and my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment, had they not lay hold of Christ. Spurgeon says, that thought of a mom bearing swift witness against me at judgment pierced my conscience, and it stirred my heart. Mom, you too play a significant role. Now, Jesus, he laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. They bring their children, wanting Jesus to consecrate them. But instead, what does Jesus do? He blessed them. It's a different word. The word blessed in the Greek is eugelo, the word that we get eulogy from. It literally means to praise or to invoke blessing upon. This is why that we reject the biblical, not the biblical notion, but the, the traditional Christian notion of infant baptism. We believe that a child will have to make a decision at some point in their life to follow Jesus. But it's also why we, we do a baby dedication. When parents make the decision that they want their child dedicated to the Lord, and we ask the Lord to bless that child and to bless the parents, that they could raise their child in a godly manner. The second interaction. We see how the disciples behave and how Jesus reacts and responds to them. The disciples, morons. We're told they rebuked those who brought them to Jesus. And why would they react in such a way to parents wanting to bring their children to Jesus? Well, I think that they failed to understand still what Jesus meant by being a servant of all. He places his entire message on servanthood in context to a child. It's not an accident. Parents bring children and they fail the test. Now Jesus' reaction. We're told that when he saw it, he was greatly displeased. This phrase, greatly displeased, it's unique. It's the only time we ever read of Jesus having this reaction to the disciples. It literally means to be indignant or enraged. Jesus blew a gasket. Steam is pouring out of Jesus' ears as he's looking at this situation unfold. And why would Jesus have such a strong reaction? The disciples were prohibiting seekers from getting to Jesus. And let me tell you this, the most dangerous place for an individual to be is between a person and the God that they're seeking. That is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Fathers, don't stand between your children and Jesus. And instead of standing between the two by setting a poor example therein, encourage it, foster it. Jesus is enraged when he sees someone that's prohibiting another from truly reaching Jesus. And his response, he says, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now, this is serious. He's saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, open your ears. Open your ears because if you want eternal life, you must receive the kingdom as a little child. Now, Jesus is not saying, and sometimes this is taken out of context, He's not saying that to receive the kingdom or to enter eternal life or to really follow Jesus, that we need to be like a child. That we should have traits similar to that of a child. That we should be weak and meek and innocent and docile 
and even maybe somewhat naive. Instead, the emphasis is not on children, but instead on receiving. That's the emphasis of what Jesus is saying. He's saying the manner in which we receive the kingdom should be similar to the way a child receives provision. And we'll close with just three quick points here. Children. You know, children receive out of absolute dependency. A child has everything. Why? Because they're dependent for everything. A child can't earn their own provision or provide for themselves. They need their parents to provide for them. They are dependent upon the person that's doing the giving, which makes them good receivers. Secondly, children receive without worrying about worriness. You know, the onus concerning provision for a child is not on the child. It's on the parent. Children, never worry if they're good enough or if they've done enough when a parent wants to give them something. You'll never see, really, Christmas would look different if children had that, that, the opposite approach. They open the gift, they look at it, they're like, oh, this is great, and then they kind of get somber. And they come to mom, and they're like, I know I really haven't been good. Do you think I really am? Am I worthy? No. They not only rip it open, you might get a thanks, but then they throw it into the pile of other stuff that they're giving without rhyme or reason. But thirdly, children are unashamed receivers. They're unashamed. You want to give, they want to take. And it's a good combo. They are. They're takers. They're receivers. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is making a very important theological point. He's saying, if you want the kingdom of God, if you want the kingdom, your perspective shouldn't be about earning it or worthiness. It should be about receiving. Because the truth, there's nothing you can do to earn it. And instead, you must receive. And this idea, this teaching on receiving the kingdom, essential. It sets the stage for a young man we'll look at next week who is doing his best to earn the kingdom. And Jesus has some important things to say to him. And so, Father, we thank you for your word and what it says.